Let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to be in chapter 44 and chapter 45 today. If you did not bring a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats, uh, underneath the seats in front of you, and you can take one of those out and follow along. And if you need a Bible, you can take one of those home with you. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 24. And we're going to do a lot of reading. I'll read all of it out loud, but uh, it's, uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. We're going to try to take it as slow as we can to digest what Isaiah is saying here. But I want to start all of this off with the understanding that the Bible brings all of reality, including the things that really baffle us in life, under the command of God. There is just some things you sit there and you go, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't get it. I don't get what's going on in the world. I don't get what's going on in China. I don't get what's going on in Iran. I don't get what's going on. You know, all of these different things. The Bible doesn't shrink from those problems, though. It deliberately, and I want you to catch this, I, I firmly believe that God deliberately creates more problems for us. I, I really do. Because too often, we settle for superficial answers. And this is where we're going to leap off into the deep end of the pool this morning. God wants to lift us up in maturity. And that maturity is meant to have a confident base in who he is as the one true God who is wisely managing reality towards a goal that deserves all of our effort and all of our strength and all of our might and pursuing under his authority. And Isaiah foresees the glory of the Lord revealed to the whole world. We saw that back in chapter 40, in verse 5. The Lord is not coming down just to patch things up a bit. God intends nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? And he's starting that newness with you and me. We get to participate in that first. Isaiah envisions an ongoing, and we talked about Reformation two weeks ago, an ongoing Reformation, and then last week, an ongoing revival for the people of God. And that ongoing Reformation, that ongoing revival, keeps going until we are completely remade. Now, how does God work his great plan. What strategies is he using? Yesterday was college football kind of wrap-up day. Figuring out who's going where and all of these fun things. And, and football, if, if you are a football fan, it, it is complicated. It is not a simple sport to understand. All of the different plays, all of the different formations, all of the different options. The, the head of the offense, the quarterback, has to know so much stuff. Not only does he have to know his plays, 
He has to know the plays of the other team and their tendencies and the tendencies of every single player on the other side. Then he has to know what are the tendencies of my guys and the plays I have, and then if I look at the play setup they have, what is something that potentially will work on our side, and he has about 10 seconds to figure it out. Oh, yes, he has a little help from the sideline, but at the end of the day, it's all on his shoulder. And over on the defensive side, the middle linebacker, I don't know if you know any of these terms, but just play with me. But the middle linebacker is there. He's calling out the defensive packages and what we're going to do and who's going where. And he has 10 seconds, maybe 15, to figure out what they're going to do. It is an incredible game of strategy. Now, maybe some of you don't like sports, but some of you like some board games. Have you ever participated in a board game where someone didn't get the strategy? I actually find that kind of fun because you can mess with them. And you can do all things. You can block them here. You can do all of this. And you see the frustration level and all of that. But there's all of these strategies going on. And the reason I'm spending this time with this idea of strategy is that God has a strategy in mind. This is not by chance what's going on in our world. This is not by chance what is going on in your life. History, the history we see around us, is incredible when you understand that God is involved in every second of it. And it produces some questions, and we're going to ask those in a little bit. In all of Isaiah, but specifically here, Isaiah shows us really improbable methods that God uses. And the structure of what we're looking at today is threefold. God accepts final responsibility for everything that happens. Second, God warns us to not take offense at that. And third, God calls us to embrace him as God. So let's dive in, starting in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purposes of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will rise, raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be, re, re, not rebuilt, but be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Starting in chapter 45, then verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings 
to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you through, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. If you noticed... In that section of scripture, it's framed within this idea of I am the Lord. I am the one who makes all things. I am the Lord, the Lord who has done all things. I am the Lord who has created it. And within this section, God is claiming final responsibility for everything that happens in history. The whole of creation belongs to God. He he stretches out the heavens, spreads out the earth. As the creator, God is free to interrupt processes of history and bend events any way he wants them to go. Now, we have people that try to predict many things about the future of our world, right? We have people that try to predict when the world runs out of resources, when the population's too big, All of these things. And the truth is, is all they have are past patterns and trends to try to extrapolate what they can. Man, that is so limited. But what can God do? Well, God can hit rewind, fast forward, whatever he wants, no matter what anyone else says, God's in charge. And in fact, here's one of the improbable strategies that is embedded in this section of Scripture. It's pretty interesting. He says, I'm, I'm going to raise up this guy named Cyrus, who's been mentioned before, but now we're going all in on this. God's calling him by name over a century in advance. The dude's not alive yet. And he's calling him by name to prove his own sovereignty over human events. God plans to raise up Cyrus the Great, the Persian conqueror, to defeat Babylon, set the Jewish people free, and send them home to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple to fulfill Scripture so that Jesus can be born where he's supposed to be born. This is all part of it. 
The promised Messiah, Jesus, was not going to appear in Babylon, and God's people were where? They're in Babylon. The word says, cities of Judah, behold your God, in chapter 40, verse 9. God's people have to get home. God's people have to prepare the way of the Lord. So God's shaping all of history, including what we regard as non-biblical events or secular events. He's, he's doing everything to advance his purpose centered in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We have to understand that. We can imagine Isaiah's original Jewish readers loving this. But there's a problem. They're like, hey, we're going to get to go back and build, right? You, you see that in there? But if you dive into this a little bit and what does God call Cyrus, my shepherd, my anointed? Now, Isaiah had been arguing that idols and idol worshipers are stupid. He had been saying that. And Cyrus is a person who worshipped idols. Now, he did give credit to the God of Israel for the victory over Babylon, and he did free the Jewish people to go home and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. We see that in Ezra chapter 1. But that was just Cyrus's way of being diplomatic, really. He freed all of the foreign peoples that he conquered and that were enslaved in Babylon. He let them rebuild all of their temples. That was actually his general policy because he wanted the favor of the gods. We have a record of that outside of the Bible in his own hand. But God calls this pagan politician my shepherd. And he speaks to him as the anointed one. It's a Messiah type of figure. And you can actually feel the weirdness of this by if you look at the original ancient Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, verse 1, calls Cyrus a Christ. Like, ugh. Ugh. Could you imagine the Jewish people hearing this? Shepherd, anointed one. Those, those are already bad enough because that's the royal line of David. Now God is transferring all of those titles over to this Gentile conqueror. It had to seem to the Jewish people that, that God was just kind of washing his hands of them. But not just that, he was overthrowing the whole moral order, order of the universe. And God says, I am the Lord who does all these things. So what does Isaiah see here? Well, he sees the sovereignty of God. He sees that the sovereignty of God is big enough to include this offense to them. In God's mastery over all things, God uses whatever persons and methods he wants, whether we like it or not. He is not defeated by the gritty realities of human history. God is using the realities of human history for a redemptive purpose so that even Cyrus, even Cyrus, the Gentile pagan, can foreshadow the true shepherd and Messiah, Jesus. And if God is sovereign, then all of history, not just the history that we like, all of the history 
since creation is his plan. All the events have one ultimate cause. They fit into one great purpose. They find their significance in one final victory. So whatever you do, don't box God in. It means we can't think about this whole thing in just pieces. It means making room for the improbable ways of God's working. And that's tough, isn't it? God, I don't understand this. Once again, we'll get to that in a minute. But the truth is, is if God were only a local kind of tribal deity, life would be kind of simpler. When the going gets tough, then, for example, you can pray about it, and then if it gets worse, you could see that your God is being overwhelmed by some other superior source, and you punt that God. But if God really is king of everything, then the bigger questions of life get uh, a little smaller in some ways. But as they get smaller, they get harder. If God is God and he's sovereign over everything, these questions that come up when the reality of different things happening in our lives goes on is pretty tough. Why do I have cancer? I mean, how many people do you know who have had to deal with that, including yourself maybe, and you have that question. Will there be enough money in my retirement plan to see me through? I already know the answer for me, no. <laughs> I also have my retirement plan. I'm going to be the guy at Walmart with the little stickers smiling at everyone as they come in. Here's your smiley face. I don't believe in retirement, actually, for me personally. But they're not small questions, right? They're, they're weighty questions. Why does this happen to my family on the day before Thanksgiving? Why does this happen during this season when there's supposed to be a season of joy when I am mourning because of whatever's going on in my life? And it's not just health, it's also job, it's, it's, it's kids, it's everything, right? Those are weighty questions. But they're smaller questions than the ones like, does my life have any meaning at all? Because that question is being answered over and over again by the younger crowd in our nation with the answer, no, it doesn't mean anything. So I'm going to tap out. And that's why you see the suicide rates skyrocketing. Do I have any enduring hope at all? Am I on my own in this universe? Is my experience part of a larger drama with God as the author, or am I just floating along? You see, those are bigger questions. And the gospel leaves many of the urgent, smaller questions unanswered even as it assures us of God's redemptive purpose on the bigger questions. 
whatever happens, the greatest thing that we can know is what when we look at this section of Scripture. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things. You get that? I, the Lord, am the one who does all all of these things. Whatever God does, He is taking us more deeply into His love. And He asks us to trust Him enough to not take offense of what's going on, but to follow Him. God has promised that His glorious salvation is the future of the world. He's bending all of history around that in that direction. And Isaiah affirms that in chapters, chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. God made his presence felt by handing the known world over to Cyrus on a silver platter. In a very human struggle, God was working his plan. And we can see, really, how God spreads out even more widely from Cyrus to Israel to the nations. And we could see that he's proving that I am the Lord and there is no other. And in his perfect plan, and this is what's interesting, in his perfect plan, he accepts full responsibility for his actions. What does it say back in verse 7 that we just read? The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. What's the word that he says right before I am the Lord who does all these? Calamity. Calamity. God does not just allow darkness and calamity and then blame it on someone else. God actually creates this. Isaiah is not saying that God sins. That's our problem. But the strategies of a God include within their scope everything that happens as God pursues his redemptive purpose in the world. And so you need to understand this. And this is something that, you know, this week when I was looking at this, we need to pause for a moment and maybe write this down and kind of just think about this. Evil is not outside of God's control. He uses it without being dirtied by it. And some of you may go, "Uh uh-oh, I don't understand that at all. In dealing with the problem of evil in the world, we run into many problems, don't we? When someone says, why would God allow dot, 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 you can fill in the blank, right? A lot of different calamities over the history of the world. For example, could God have prevented the Holocaust? Yes, he could have, right? He's sovereign. He's God. He could have also prevented Stalin's massacres in Russia. He could have also prevented the Spanish Inquisition's torture of dissidents. He could have also stopped Nero's reign of terror 
He could have stopped the globalist agenda of the COVID thing that's going on now. He could have. But God, in each case, has allowed evil men to exercise a certain amount of power for a short amount of time. Ultimately, we don't know why, the reasons for what God allows. As it says later in Isaiah, as we'll look at that in Isaiah 55, and it says that throughout Scripture, his ways and thoughts are what? Infinitely higher than ours. His sovereign plan takes the whole scope of history, past, present, future, encompassing every possible course of action, every cause and effect, every potentiality, every contingency. There is no way we can possibly fathom the intricacies of God's design. By faith, we have to trust that His plan is the best plan possible for restoring fallen humanity Restoring a cursed world to righteousness and blessing. But we can understand this. God's permission for those things to happen is not the same as his approval. Did you catch earlier that God will control and use evil? But does that mean that God approves it? No. We know that in Scripture. God allowed Adam to eat of the forbidden tree, but he did not approve of the action. In the same way, God allowed the Holocaust, and in no way that suggests God's approval of it. God is continually, always grieved by the sinfulness of man and the hardness of man's heart. The sin in this world, the horrors such as as the Holocaust, as, as things going on in Iran right now, as things going on in China right now. I mean, just list it, right? Things going on in your own life right now. The sinful things are a direct result of mankind's continued rebellion against God. Therefore, nothing, however evil, deprives God of one particle of his intended outcomes. It, it, otherwise, he's not God. Because when you think about it, what's the most vicious evil ever perpetrated in history so far? The crucifixion of Christ, the cross. We forget about that sometimes. Man took the one sinless man and killed him. Isaiah says it was the Lord, the will of the Lord to crush him. Peter preached that Jesus was delivered up according to the what? Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Look it up. Acts 2.23, Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. 
when Peter said that, he's not excusing himself for denying Jesus. He was saying that the worst evil that man has ever committed, God turned into what? Salvation. I am the Lord who does all these things. So here's my encouragement for you today. Let's stop trying to rescue God from what God is doing. Stop trying to explain God out of the history of the world. He is in full mastery of all things. Don't say, oh, God isn't involved. Do not try to relieve God of his responsibilities because God is what? He is the king of the universe. And if we try to relieve him of the responsibilities of being sovereign and over all, he is no longer God. And what's interesting is the very thing that people perceive as a problem. Oh, God, if, you know, if I were God, I would never allow that to happen. Well, guess what? You're not. The very thing that we perceive as a problem, God perceives as glory. And namely, God owns the dark moments of life. He bends everything around for a saving purpose. When Isaiah wrote this long ago, he did not overlook the difficulty that us brainy modern people would have with this. Isaiah 45, 7, he says, I created it. I created calamity. I created all of this. I am God. It's not an embarrassment. It's what we should love about God. Not even evil can mess with him. And his surprising strategies are our assurance. And that's why it ends with that section there in verse 8. You know, hey, drip, drip down, O heavens, from above and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Salvation, righteousness, bear fruit. See, if, if you are in Christ this morning... This is a picture of what God promises to do for you. Fresh, new life springing up out of natural deadness. And natural deadness is what you have without his sovereign grace. And what we also need to do is we need to stop insisting on what we call miracles in our lives. We also need to see that. God will use any method he so chooses to do great things. And whatever his strategy may be, at any given moment, he looks at what he's doing and he rejoices in it. And we should too. We can always be happy that God is God. Because he's better qualified to be God than you are. But the problem still happens in our arrogance. How many of you like arrogant people? That's what I thought. 
But as sinners, we are so arrogant to God and who He is. Verse 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, To what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. I have aroused him in righteousness, and will, I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, first things first, God's not offended by honest questions. Why God? But he is offended when we accuse him of messing up our lives. See, it's way different to ask why and be baffled. I don't understand. Than it is to sit in judgment of God. We are so far beneath God as clay is beneath a potter, we see here. But when we're brooding over how God has ruined everything for us, what does he say? He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. God's saying, I'm, I'm so sorry you feel that way about me. You won't let me be God to you. You keep insisting that I do things your way. But I want to be your God, not your puppet. And I want you to be my people, not my judge and jury. God's really saying to us, how can you experience the love of God without letting me be God? And Isaiah here is obviously way too wise to imply that faith in God is always easy. Think of the Jewish people of that time. Glorious past in the kingdom of Solomon. They had national independence. They had a standing army. All of those things. They had been in control as they had seemed. But now their liberator is going to be uh, a pagan Gentile. Now they'll reoccupy their own land by his permission and he will pay for the rebuilding of their temple. The dream is kind of over and in a humiliating way too. And they had a hard time accepting that that was what God was doing. But surprising us is just one of the things that God does. And we have to come to terms with that. We're celebrating Christmas. The incarnation was a shock. Right? You read the story, it wasn't a bunch of people going around, oh yeah, I get it. 
had this plan. They're like, no way. The virgin concept of Jesus and his birth was a scandal. They didn't go, oh yeah, Old Testament. The cross was an embarrassment. What did the followers of Jesus do? All of it was surprising. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Whatever your struggle is, God is saying to you today what he was saying to the Jewish people back then. My plan is better than you could ever think. Verse 13 there. You know, what does it say? I've stirred Cyrus up in righteousness and I'll make all his ways level and he shall build my city and set my exiles free, not, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts in another version there. He's saying, you know, Cyrus isn't a threat to my plan. He is my plan. And it's the right plan. And God's saying, I want you to share my enthusiasm with the, my plan. That's the kind of faith God is asking us for, which leads us to the final point of not being arrogantly against what God is doing, but instead accepting God's invitation. Thus says the Lord, verse 14. It's a long section of scripture, so dive in with me here and let's read it. Thus says the Lord, the the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabinians, uh, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and I will, and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. That's what they'll say. Verse 15, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior, They will put to shame and even humiliate all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it as a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. If you're following along, I'm in verse 22 now. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. 
for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to me, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all of the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 5. The meek shall inherit the earth. You get what's going on? Going on in our own world right now? And it's happened in every generation. Right now, the wrong people are admired. The wrong ideals are promoted. But it won't always be so. The meek the ones that bow their knee to Christ shall inherit the earth. Yes, there will be a day when fools will no longer be sought after. They will humble themselves in admiration of the saints. And why is Isaiah making this point? Well, because the Jewish people felt that because they were defeated, God was defeated. But God is declaring that he has not withdrawn his promise of salvation. Far from it. He's including all nations into that promise. You know what? There's times when it seems to stink to believe what we believe. And we, we see what's going on around us and we go, I feel defeated. Any of you kind of feel like that sometimes? Especially as Christians in this part of California. I, I kind of feel defeated many, many times. Every time you turn around, smack. So we were very much like the Jewish people at that time. We, we feel defeated. We feel like, okay, God. But God's not defeated. God's declaring that he's not withdrawn. God has been doing that for more than 2,000 years. We worship God today because of his love spreading out, not contracting. There's two powers at play at all times, right? Power of darkness and the power of light, the power of God and the power of Satan. What's interesting is they both have a plan. Now Satan is a deceiver. He has no original idea. So he takes God's plan and messes with it. Right? That's just what he does. You know what Satan's plan is? He's got a group of people running around trying to make this a one-world government and eventually as we see in the book of revelation it comes underneath the authority of the antichrist that's not an original plan god's plan is one world rid of all idols enjoying salvation in christ every single one of his strategies is to that end 
and that's what makes believing in him beautiful. All nations, all peoples bow to one God under his authority through Christ Jesus. And we look at our world right now and we go, that's not possible. Well, the strategies of God are surprising, aren't they? No one less than Isaiah himself marveled at how God pursues that plan. It says in verse 15, this is an interesting one, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. No one watching the Jewish people struggling to rebuild Jerusalem back then, and no one watching Christians today struggling to serve God thinks that the future lies with us. I mean, quite honestly, Satan's done a pretty good job, as we knew he would, according to Scripture. Do people look at the church in general, and I'm talking people that are not believers, do they look at the church and think, only if the Christians were running the world? Isn't it the exact opposite? Man, we gotta, we got to contain them and cancel them and throw them away. And what's interesting that is in both cases, in the church and in the Jewish people of that time, God hides his greatness in our commonness. He hides his wisdom and power in the foolishness and the weakness of the gospel, right? It's hard to see the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth in Christian believers today, but it's there, everyone. Now, for some of us who have matured in Christ and have been walking in Christ, and that can be someone that's two weeks into being a Christian even, there's people that are Christians that look around and go, oh, 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 I, I get it. I get what the power of, of Christ through the church is. God has put the power of the resurrection of Christ in who? In us. The truth hidden from natural eyes is that in verse 17, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. And if you have sometimes difficulty seeing that, there was a guy that was right there with you and his name was Martin Luther. He used to speak of this word phrase that he would like called the hidden God versus the revealed God. And his counsel to people that came under his shepherding as a pastor, he said, if you accept the God who is revealed, the hidden God will be given to you at the same time. In other words, if you accept what is clear to you from the gospel, God will give you more understanding over time of what is unclear. Accept as much of the offense of the gospel as you can, and his mercy will keep overflowing in your life, and God will help you take the next step into fuller assurance. 
No one has ever trusted God through Christ without benefiting from it. And that's what, in verses 20 through 25, we see that. We see how God reasons with us. We, we look at the way he invites us to rethink our lives. The problem with our idols is not that they break down now and then. Our idols aren't like home appliances that, oh, the refrigerator went out. I guess I need a new one. The problem with our idols is the, they're completely useless. When we think an idol is helping us, we're in fact experiencing the goodness of God, the common grace of God, but without thanking Him. There is no life, no salvation, no hope at all except in God alone. Our part is to turn away from worthless idols and turn to the living God. If we will, we can experience salvation in a way that we are supposed to experience it because God cannot fail to be God to us. The whole point of creation, the whole point of history as we see here, is for God to glorify himself by saving us. Your salvation is not ultimately about you. We've said this before, your salvation is about God. He is both perplexing and faithful because he is God, and we need to accept that. Don't be incensed against God. God is glorifying himself by being himself, and his being God is our salvation, if we'll have him. And so here's the application of this section. Once again, look to Christ. Turn to Christ and be saved. He's the only Savior. Verse 22. Let's look at that again. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's a guy that I like to quote a lot that I really look up to as a pastor from England. His name is Spurgeon. And when you get to heaven, you can ask him, what was the part of God's word that rung true the first time for you? And he would say, because he wrote it in a lot of different places, it was Isaiah 45, 22. And on that specific morning in his life, it was a Sunday morning, it was snowy outside just like here, and there was a sub-preacher at this church, an untrained guy up there just trying to share God's word. So the ordinary preacher was sick with COVID or something. <laughs> so they got this guy, and they put him up there in this little dinky church, you got to read it. It's actually one of the funniest accounts in church history as it goes. So this scrawny, thin guy, as Spurgeon lets us know, without any training, gets up and from the King James Version, simply says, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And there's your sermon. He turned to 
few people in the room, in the congregation there, and this guy, untrained, scrawny, pastor dude that's not really a pastor, said, you look with eyes of faith, you look to Christ, you turn to Christ, and you'll be saved. Let me repeat that. You look with eyes of faith, you look to Christ, you turn to Christ, and you'll be saved. And Spurgeon said, it was weird. All of a sudden, the scales were gone from my eyes. I looked and I looked until I could look my eyes away no longer. And I finally saw Christ crucified and resurrected as the only Savior there is. So, I don't know what your spiritual condition is today, what brought you here today, what's going in your life, on in your life today, but I do know this. The gospel is still as powerful today as it was in Isaiah chapter 45 and chapter 44. Look to Christ. There is no Savior other than Him. And then for us as Christians, we have a responsibility to take that same message out to the ends of the earth, to college campuses, to the workplace, through the week, we should never be silent. Now, there's other applications we've seen along the way. Have you seen some today? Maybe you saw learning not to argue with God when things are going poorly. Maybe you saw, you know, it's probably not a good idea to argue with God. Humble yourself under his hand, trust in him no matter what's going on, who's in charge of history, he is even the evil, who's in charge, God. Understand that God brings both prosperity and disaster. We cannot be juvenile or immature in our understanding of God. We cannot say foolish things in times of disaster, in times of heartache and hurt and need in people's lives, God's still in charge. God forms the light. He creates the darkness. He brings prosperity. He brings disaster. He does all things. And we need to meditate on the hiddenness of God. Understand if God doesn't want you to know him in a certain way about how it works, understand that that's God's prerogative, the hiddenness of God. If God doesn't reveal himself in a certain way on certain things, you'll never, ever know that until when? Until he wants you to know it anyway. But God has revealed himself in Scripture and in Christ. The major things that are going on today in our world and I could list many of them, they're actually all in there. They're all in Scripture. Where most of the fights are, those, those are things that aren't hidden. So, though God is a God who hides himself in some ways, we are told later in the chapter that he has not told us to seek him in vain. He has told us to seek him with all your heart. Make it our daily 
work of our life to seek this hidden God and know him. Turn to God. Turn and know him. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and what? For I am God and there is no other. Lord, we thank you for this time together today. I thank you for everyone that's here. Thank you for your word, how you have revealed what you want to reveal to us and how to live. Lord, thank you for who you are. Lord, I I pray right now that we will turn to you and be saved, that we will not be arrogant. but we will be ones who sing with you. He is the Lord who does all these things. Thank you for doing all of these things for us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me right now? I want to thank you for being here this morning. Uh, I'll be down front here if you'd like to say hi or uh, have any questions or want to pray about anything. I'll be down front. We've got Daniel in the back there. We've got elders wandering around. We'd love to spend some time with you. We've got the books available at the back door for the uh, Advent reading, so we'd love for you to have that. Remember the offering uh, on your way out as well. Uh, let's, Let's just pray together right now. Lord, we thank you for the awesome work of Jesus Christ in our lives. We thank you that we have the opportunity to be saved through him. We pray right now that as we go out of these doors that we will share the truth of the gospel to this world. Your marvelous plan in the midst of chaos, there is a plan and you have put it together. So Lord, we rest our faith on that. And Lord, I pray right now that this next week we just put people in our lives that we can invite to come here and and hear the truth of, of your word during the week and on Sunday. Lord, thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.